Okay, here we are right now with our next episode in the series Finding Other Worlds, a commentary on the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and you heard it here on the Andrew Lake Podcast. If you are a regular listener of the Andrew Lake Podcast, please share your favourite episode, as this will help me find my audience. It will help to find the people who are ready to hear what we are talking about here. And what we're talking about here, I hope you've been following along. I hope you've been able to keep up, because we're going through this plot We're looking at some things, and we're currently about halfway through Prince Caspian. So, if you're just tuning in, you might want to go back to the episode before this, episode 8, I believe it was, could be. I'm I'm only partly sure of that. Whatever the episode is before this will be the start of Prince Caspian. So, we're halfway through the plot. And Peter and his crew have turned up, they've met Prince Caspian, and they've worked out they're in the middle of a battle, they're in the middle of the war, and they get this idea, which is that, well, instead of having an army against an army, which is actually not looking very good for the old Narnians, why don't they call a duel? Why don't they have a one-on-one, our best versus your best sort of thing? And they say this, well, because now they've got Peter on their side. Now they've got this old warrior, this high king from the olden times. So they arrange to have the message sent, and the message is sent. And there's this funny thing with the advisors of this king, this evil king, which is that they coerce him into accepting this. Because they feel, well, he's not a very good king. They don't really like him. But they can't just outright say that, right? They can't just outright assassinate him either. So these advisors, this advisor, one in particular, well, he doesn't like the king. And it might even be that he's trying to get the power for himself. So he uses a kind of reverse psychology, which is where he says to the king, no, you shouldn't accept. You shouldn't accept because he's so young. And the king's sort of like, well, well what do you mean? You think, you think I'm too old, do you? You think I can't beat someone who's young? And then there's a whole bunch of other things as well, which is like saying, well, You don't know what he's like. He's from a distant land. He's from the olden times. He might have a kind of magic. And the king's like, well, ah, I don't believe in that sort of nonsense. So he's coerced. He's sort of tricked into accepting this fight. And everything's arranged. And around about now in our story, we get introduced to a very interesting character. This character is the character of Reapy Cheap. <laughs> oh, Reapy Cheap. 
Do you remember reading the stories of Reapy Cheap? Reapy Cheap is the king of the mouse. The well, I don't know if you can call him the king. He's sort of the he's sort of the boss of all the mouses, of all the mice. And he, of course, himself is a mouse. And he comes along and he says, well, I want to come along as support for this battle, this one-on-one between Peter and the enemy. And, and Peter says, no, you shouldn't, because you might spook him being a mouse, being a talking mouse. And that is quite funny, because... It's like Peter is just playing fair, right? He's so honest that he wouldn't do something to offset the courage of his enemy. He wouldn't play dirty. He wouldn't have those sort of tactics. Whereas you realize, well, the other side would do that. But the other thing that comes out about Reapy Cheap is that he has this sort of passaway comment, which is something about, well, don't make any fun of me for being short or for being different because you'll have to contend with my sword. So, Reapy Cheap's got this thing which is proving himself and he's all about honour. He's all about dignity. He's all about holding in others the respect that they have for him. So he insists on others that they respect him. And this, well, is quite obviously because he's so short, because he's a mouse, because mice are often seen as such small little petty things. And this is an interesting illustration because, you see, we've got these talking animals in in Narnia. We've got these intelligent animals. And so many animals... Well, they don't all have a good vibe. They don't all have a good image. They don't, they're, they're not all in good standing in the public. And yet Reaper Cheap, he's someone who's got some guts. And he's actually really good with his sword too. He's a really good fighter. And he's really confident. And he's got his own dignity. And he's all for the king and honour. And these sorts of values. So he's a pretty deep character. He's a strong character. And that's to be understood in a mouse. That's to be understood in a figure that on the surface is normally not given those characteristics. That normally doesn't have those qualities. So... Reapy Cheap is a character to take note of. He'll come back in a minute. And Peter goes off and they have the fight between this king and Peter. And it doesn't go so well. Peter offers has some wounds and there's a lot of backs and forth and there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of action. And in the kerfuffle, in the hitting forth and backs and twos and fro's, Peter manages to knock him down. And he knocks down this king. He doesn't kill him, but he knocks him down. And then as he knocks him down, some from the other side come and intervene. And then there's sort of this row that breaks out. 
from those that are looking on it. It sort of breaks into another battle. And in that moment, the advisor to the king actually comes up and kills him. He assassinates him. So the king is killed and another battle has broken out. During this time, well, Lucy and Susan are off with Aslan. And Aslan takes a trip round this Narnia land to some of the areas that have been now inhabited by the humans. And since, well, all the talking animals in, are in hiding, you almost get the impression that it's like it's, like it's a normal world, right? Because there's just humans and there's classrooms and they're wearing school uniforms And it's almost like you get this image that, well, it's a lot like London. It's a lot like the schools in our world, in the times of Peter and his crew. So Aslan is going around and he's sort of of making this tour across the classrooms, right? So imagine this. (laughs) You're in class. And a lion turns up at the window. <laughs> you can imagine how much chaos that would ensue. And so it's this glorious thing where Aslan is touring around and causing all this chaos in the children and some of the animals are coming out to join him and it turns into a bit of a party. And he ends up actually coming across Caspian's old tutor, the original tutor. So she is freed from where she is. And it's really something to see this image. I mean, let's let's linger on this image for a bit because we've got this magical world, right? This magical land of Narnia. And all up until now, it's always been that kind of magical fairy tale full of fantasy sort of characteristics. But here, in this part of the narrative, it appears to be, well, very much like a normal world. All the magic is gone from it. The children in the classroom aren't learning about the magic. They're not learning about the history. They're not able to have the kind of freedoms and the joys that magic brings them. And it's in the exact place, right? So it's the, it's the reversal of this thing of the geographical component of the world, right? Because we've seen Narnia from a geographical position. We've seen it as a magical and an etherical kind of position, as a different world. And now we're seeing it in the opposite of that because we're in Narnia geographically and there's no magic in it. It's not the world that it really is. So by reversing how the world appears and the state of the world, we see how that world is different. We see how there are components that are contrasted to what it used to be. And you can see how that applies in our world. You can see how that applies in life. I don't need to point it out to you. 
And we see this again later on in many different ways through the rest of the narrative. I mean, what what is it that makes a world what it is? Because if you were a kid brought up in this new Narnia, well, you would still have this opening. You would still have this shock when Aslan turns up. You would still have this clashing of this new world coming into being, right? That's what these kids in this classroom are experiencing. They're experiencing some other world. And yet, from where we're sitting, we're saying, no, it's not an other world. It's the world as it should be. It's the original world. It's the real world. It's Narnia. It's perfectly natural to have Aslan turn up and have a whole bunch of parties happen. It's perfectly natural. It's right that all these animals start talking. That's the way of the world. So those are some of the mechanics of the illustrations that are happening now. So this party goes on and it turns into a bit of a bit of an army and Aslan ends up meeting up with the battle that is happening between Peter and the rest of the bad animals, the beastly animals. And this is enough for them to win. So they win the battle and peace is restored and it's happy days again. And there is peace in Narnia. Now, one of the things that happens just after this battle is that some people and some mice, to be more specific, bring Reapy Cheap to Aslan and they bring him to him on a stretcher. And he has been battling hard, he has been fighting hard, and he suffered a lot of wounds. And he lies there before Aslan. And Lucy comes along with her healing potion. And she puts drops all over him. And it takes quite a while because he's got a lot of wounds. But he does end up healing his wounds. And he stands up in front of Aslan. And as he stands up, he finds that he's lost his balance. And he falls over. And he stands up again. And again he loses his balance. And by the third time he's tried to stand up, he realises his tail has been cut off. And this has meant that, well, he's lost his sense of balance. He's lost his sense of grounding. And Reapy Cheap is sort of lying there. And they've realized that, well, while Lucy's potion can heal wounds, it can't regrow limbs. And everyone's standing around and, well, Aslan is looking at him. And he sort of suggests, he sort of says, well, Aslan, can you save me? Can you heal me? And Aslan, he actually pauses. He actually doesn't. And this is interesting because because someone can do something and it would be a good thing for them to do it, does that mean they are obliged to? 
does that mean that they have to? And the answer is no. The answer is just because they could do that good doesn't mean they are obliged to. And that's quite a tricky lesson to learn when this helpless mouse, who has been so strong, is lying in front of Aslan with all these people to sit around and watch, looking on. So in this moment, Reepicheep has his crew and they pull out their swords. And Aslan goes, well, what are you going to do? What are you planning? And they say, well, if our leader, our head, can't have his tail, we are going to chop off ours. We will, be, we will follow our leader, we will follow our captain, Reepy Cheap, no matter what happens, no matter what it takes. And this is quite amazing. This is a kind of loyalty that you don't see very often. And this is enough for Aslan to realize, wow, you've inspired such love and such devotion from your fellow mice that, okay, I will heal your tail. Aslan breathes his breath of life and Reepicheep is given his tail again. So the other thing that comes out is actually these mice were the mice that chewed the ropes from Aslan when he was on the stone table and dead. So there's a bit of a history there. And you can say, well, <laughs> why wouldn't Aslan help them? He helped them. But the other thing is that you say, well, it was because they chewed the ropes that they became talking animals. They were able to be intelligent. So it's sort of like this funny thing of oh, who helps who and who's deserving of who and who's able to give what to who. And having that pause of, oh, is he actually going to heal him, sort of makes that sort of acutely aware in the relationship between the mice and Aslan and Reepy Cheep. So, what happens? They've won the battle. What happens next is Aslan makes a door, magic door, and he says... Anyone who wants to stay in Narnia can stay. And those that are part of the sort of new Narnia or the now defeated Narnia, which is the people, the people in the who were sort of in the vein of teaching in classrooms, well, they can go somewhere else. And he's got this world sorted for them. He's got this place where they can go and live peacefully. So some of them go off into that world and some of them stay. And things are restored to normal and there's a last few moments with Peter in his crew enjoying a few times with those of them in Narnia but they realize they do have to go back to their world and it's not before Aslan tells Susan and Peter something in particular. And that is, 
that they will not be coming to Narnia again. This is their last time ever that they can come there. And Peter tells this to Lucy and she sort of thinks, whoa, aren't you upset? And he actually says, no, he's not upset. He actually feels kind of okay with it. And it's understandable for him because of where he's at and the lessons he's learnt. I believe he's realised that, well, he's got the maturity that he's needed. He's got the wisdom from the age that he's lived in order to move on to the next age that he's going to live, to be the next thing that he's going to be, to have life continue to unfold. And Peter just sort of says, well, maybe you'll understand when you're a little bit older what it means to have that insight for yourself. So, the kids go through the door. They do get a glimpse of the other world that Aslan had been sending all these other people to. But the portal continues to swirl. The magic bends and bops and pops and shiba da boop And they find themselves back on the station in London, waiting for the train to go to boarding school. And that is the story of Prince Caspian. And I wonder what it means, really, for Peter and Susan to, in a way, grow out of a story. They grow out of another world. Because it would be that at a certain place you can't go back to, in a certain way, you can't go back to a place and let it have the effect on you in the same way that it used to. And this is different to, well... Nostalgia, and maybe nostalgia really is the realization of this. Because you go back to this old place and you realize that it just it just cannot be how it was. And noticing that difference, well, maybe that is really just what is happening with nostalgia. But it's a kind of realization which goes with Well, it goes with finding new worlds. It goes with finding other worlds. Because when you find a world, well, think think of it this way. When you find something, you find something for the first time, but then you also find out what something is. And then you also find how it fits within your story of your life. How was it for you? And really, that's an arc, that's an entire opening of coming into a world, discovering it, experiencing it, going around, seeing all sorts of things. And then, in a sad sort of way, it fades, it ends. 
And it might be that the world itself is not ending, but it's just that your experience of it is ending, in the case of Peter and Susan. And in that case, well, then you have to be thinking, well, how do I integrate these experiences? How do I learn the lessons? How do I move on by being respectful of what has happened to me, of being understanding of what has happened to me, of integrating what has happened to me? And that's the direction that Lucy, uh, not Lucy, Susan and Peter are going in. They are sort of looking back as these, looking back on these stories, or already starting to look back on these stories of Narnia as this childish thing. And it's not childish in the same way as, oh, it's not true, it was just fairy tales, right? Because those experiences were real for Peter and Susan. They were true to them, as true as can true can be. So it's not like they're saying, oh, I used to believe in certain things or I used to have such silly notions. No, it's very much more that they are integrating their past into who they are as young adults. They're integrating the lessons and they're respectfully holding their memory, knowing that it can't happen again knowing that it doesn't need to happen again, knowing that, well, most fundamentally, that the things that happened to them could have only happened in the time that they happened, in the way that they happened. And that goes for you and me too. That goes for the story that we're in right now. That goes for the world that we're in right now. It can only happen this way right now. And it can only happen this way because of who you are, because of who I am, because of how the situation is. And all that is going to change. All that is going to be something that we look back on from afar. Okay, so those are some thoughts. That's the rest of Prince Caspian. This episode's a bit short. I hope you don't mind. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna extend it just because it's short. I mean we could start on the voyage of the Dawn Treader, but it's probably more neat to just put that in an episode of its own. So up next will be the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And we will see what happens on that voyage. We'll see the adventures that come about. So, stay tuned for that one. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back very soon. And that's all I have to say for now.